You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so like I said, we're kind of going to try to run through the first couple of chapters. So I'm going to read uh, a significant portion of chapter one, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. So um, if you're already in your app, just scroll up till you get to chapter one. Uh, if you're Bible, in your Bible, maybe turn a page. We'll start in verse 1. This is what it says. This is Luke writing. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's talking about the gospel of Luke. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And so, at the very beginning of Acts, this continuation, essentially the Gospel of Luke, part two, right? we find out that Jesus while he's been among them for a brief period of 40 days since his resurrection, has now ascended again into heaven. And as you can imagine, in that moment, there is some confusion. Because what they thought, as evidenced by their question in verse 6, was that Jesus was back for good, right? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you make us great again? We've heard that promise recently. Different, very, very different. (laughs) And yet Jesus has an utterly different plan that is beyond making Israel great again. It's about making his name great again. And he's going to do it through the confused few that he is going to leave behind. So he ascends into heaven and they're still standing there going, okay, like what's next? Is he going to reappear? You know, I, I don't know. It's been unpredictable up to this point following Jesus, right? And yet two men appear and they say, why are you standing here? He's gone. He'll come back the same way, but he's, he's gone. 
and it tells us that in their confusion, they retreat to an upper room, about 120 of them, men and women and the apostles, and they pray. They devote themselves to prayer together. That's it. Ordinary men and women. And so, this historical retelling of the birth of the church given to us by Luke begins with an ordinary group of people that are given whatever Sunday we might find ourselves on, are about our size, maybe a little bit smaller than us, who have devoted themselves to prayer. And so the church, the church that you and I now, by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, are now a part of 2,000 years later, begins with, again, a, a group of ordinary men and women no larger than our congregation and their heritage by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit extends 2,000 years later into the future and numbers itself not only in terms of cities or states but in terms of continents in that it has spread to the utter ends of the earth. And here's what I want us to be clear about. This, this church, these 120 people who we come to see shortly will number quite a bit more than that in just one day, are, are utterly ordinary. They're not specialists, right? There's no evangelism training in this day. There's no church strategy resources in this day. They are men and women from the fringe of society. They would be the quote-unquote country bumpkin of their day. Simpletons from the backwoods outpost of the Roman Empire. They are the very definition of what Paul called last week jars of clay. They're weak and uninspiring, but inside of them they carry the treasure of the gospel, which by the Spirit is God's power unto salvation, and it is through their appeals to God in their prayers, their devotion to prayer before Him, as they appeal to His promises, that God, through Jesus, brings the promised Holy Spirit at the appointed time. And that's where, that's where we arrive at in chapter 2, verse 1, when it says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So my fellow Baptists, you've been scared of this verse for years, and it's going to be okay. 
What happens? The power of God resting on these ordinary men, ordinary women in God's timing, right? When the day of Pentecost arrived, when his timing was full, turns the world upside down. The prayers of the saints, empowered by God's Spirit, in God's timing, turn the world upside down. So much so that you and I sit here 2,000 years later. And so, when the Holy Spirit does His ordinary work in extraordinary measure, there's no debate about who's responsible. There's no inherent capacity within them or even now within us to produce something of this magnitude, to produce something, a heritage, that extends beyond our generation. For all the great deeds of men and women in the annals of history, there are not many who are remembered beyond their generation. And here you have a house full of nobodies who have utterly reshaped history for generations to come. And so, revival here is prayed down, not worked up, right? They're not strategizing in the upper room. They don't have maps and they're saying, well, there's a lot of lost people here, so we're going to send you two here and you guys are really more suited for this area, so we're going to send you there. They're just praying. They're just praying and God responds graciously with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They're empowered for the ministry of the gospel, which is exactly what happens next. We see Peter deliver his greatest ever sermon starting in verse 14. And I'm not going to read all of it. That's why we ended sort of with that last chunk of it starting in verse 36. Jesus proclaims the gospel and He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's essentially the content of Peter's sermon, so we don't have to read all of it. We'll just kind of parse it out from there. But Peter proclaims this gospel of Jesus Christ through whose name everyone who calls upon it will be saved. This Jesus who was delivered up by God, crucified and killed, not only by our lawlessness, but for our lawlessness. And he goes on to tell them that God has now raised up this Jesus in His body of flesh, and He has loosed the pangs of death because death could not hold Him. And he says that now this Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and that He received the Holy Spirit and now pours it out upon us. And so the same satisfaction that God has with Jesus at His baptism, when the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon Jesus and God from the heavens says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, because of the gospel of Jesus, because of His willingness to die in our place, now the Holy Spirit rests on us and God says the same thing. This is my beloved Son, my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. And Peter says that if we call upon His name, 
then we will be saved and we will receive that Spirit and the accompanying affirmation of the Father. And he concludes with that grand statement in 36, this Jesus is Lord. He is King. And so again, Peter, a normal guy, empowered by the Holy Spirit, preaches this great sermon about the gospel of Jesus, the glories of redemption secured through Jesus, our forgiveness throughout eternity through Jesus. And what happens? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. Right? And so in the course of this sermon series, what have we talked about? We talked about prayer being a means of revival, but we talked about that when prayer comes and is effective, it leads us to this desire for a pure heart, a pure longing. And that's what happens here. Everything changes in this one moment. They were cut to the heart. They were given this purity of heart by the Spirit such that their longing was made pure to the degree that everything else faded in their sight. Everything else that they had been chasing fades from view and all of a sudden they find themselves with one simple question. If that Jesus is who He says He is, what do I do? What shall we do? Everything at that moment is on the table, you'll notice, right? It's not, it's not a how little can I do or what's the lowest bar of interest. It's, it's just what? What is it? Name it. And Peter obliges them in verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And so what's the response required? It is to repent and be baptized. And I think sometimes we think of baptism as maybe optional or unimportant ritual, right? Religious, overly religious so we think, I, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't like all of that stuff. And yet any objection that you might have to religion or to baptism or anything like that um, should be quashed, I think, by the fact that the audience at this time is, is primarily Jewish. And the act of baptism in Jewish culture was a rite for Gentiles. Now, if you read any other sort of New Testament letters... There's a lot of friction between those two groups. They don't like each other. One has sat on their high horse for generations, right? And one has traditionally been cast out by those on their high horse. And yet, to this primarily Jewish audience, Peter says, oh no, no. We're all right here. And we all need to be baptized. And so in that moment... This symbol of a break from one's past and the washing away of all defilement, 3,000 Jews on that day took a step that would have been beneath them 30 minutes or an hour, however long Peter's sermon lasted ago. 
And so God gives them this pure heart of faith, this pure longing for God, and it leads them to an immediate and to a radical obedience to Him. And it's in this immediate and radical and spirit-empowered obedience that Jesus says, this promise will not end with you, but it will reverberate throughout the generations to your children and to your children's children. Brothers and sisters, that is one of the surest signs that a revival has come. There are reverberations that that go on well beyond the lives of those who first witnessed it, first prayed it down. And so what happens next? Verse 40, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so again, brothers and sisters, there is nothing extraordinary about the men and women who were a part of this story. What is extraordinary is the work of the Holy Spirit in and through those ordinary men and women. A simple gospel proclaimed by simple men and women, but proclaimed with the power of the Holy Spirit, led to a mass conversion, 3,000 in one day. Now that's an administrative nightmare for a guy like Reed. Um <laughs> But it's, it's the best problem we could, we could hope to have. I think of, it like new, I think of the, them like new babies. New babies mean great responsibility and a lot of work. And so these newly born again believers were 3,000 bundles of joy, and yet they were also 3,000 accidents waiting to happen. You know? I just If you've ever YouTubed like a mom of, triplets trying to change all their diapers at the same time. That's kind of what this situation looks like at this moment. Lots of weird things you can find on YouTube, <laughs> by the way. That was one of those stumbled upon, not like actively searching for. Right, that's the... That's the potential for mess, though, that you have at this point, right? You've got 3,000 new people going, okay, I'm here, I'm saved, got the Holy Spirit, what now? And Peter's like, God, you know, I don't know. Like, we don't fit in the room anymore, that's for sure, you know. And we'll see what, again, by the grace of God and through the Spirit happens next. But I want to take just a moment, just a side note. How amazing and how comforting should it be to us that Peter preached his greatest and most effective sermon only 50 days after denying Jesus three times. 50 days. That's not even two full months, right? Not even two full months ago, Peter, with his own mouth, said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And here he is. Simple man, simple gospel, extraordinary grace of the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 are converted by his testimony. God can use us no matter how simple we may feel, 
no matter how young we may feel, no matter how unequipped we may feel. Peter, as a fisherman, I'm guessing, was not prepared to organize and orchestrate an organization that went from 120 to 3,000 in one day. It's all grace. So what happens next? Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the believers are not only saved out of their sins, they're saved into a fellowship. And it's in the context of this fellowship that they devote themselves to God in Christ, to God's word through the teaching of the apostles and to one another. Now, there's something interesting to note about this fellowship, and it's one of those things that only nerds find, so you're welcome. (laughs) This kind of fellowship did not exist before the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And here's how we can know that. The word that's used for fellowship here in verse 42 is the word koinonia, And that word, up to this point, in all of the New Testament, has never been used before. And so what Luke and God, by His Spirit, is telling us is that this first occurrence of this word means that this church is a whole new creation. It is a whole new kind of fellowship that cannot and will not be experienced apart from the Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, there is a fellowship that we can experience that is a common grace, that men and women, whether or not they are Christians, experience in humanity. And then there is the fellowship of the Spirit, which is entirely and utterly different. And it's only in this fellowship, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we will experience this kind of community, this kind of fellowship that is so radically committed to one another. And not in a way that's coerced, but in a way that's lovingly empowered by the Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, do you see why we remind you every week that the church is first and foremost a people, not a place or an event? Because it doesn't so much matter where they gather. It tells us that they gather just about everywhere. They gather in each other's homes. They gather in the temple to worship. It doesn't matter so much the location. What matters is that The fellowship is there. And this fellowship, again, devoted itself to three things. God in Christ, God's word, and God's people. And so the pouring out of God's spirit produced pure hearts, which leads to this kind of full-hearted and exclusive devotion to the fellowship of God, in which he was worshipped, in which his word is heard and in which he is obeyed, such that people love and serve one another as they love themselves. Now again, all, uh, many of us read this particular portion of Scripture and we go, man, like we get real nostalgic. You know, if I could have lived in any period of time, I would have lived in that period, Right? And yet, while this is extraordinary, let's be reminded that these things we experience ordinarily by God's grace. Brothers and sisters, we have this fellowship with one another. If we are in Christ, we have this 
unity with one another. If we are in Christ, we are called and compelled to this kind of radical generosity and care for one another. Yes, they experienced God's grace extraordinarily. But brothers and sisters, in the kingdom of God, these things are also ordinary. Things that we can experience here and now. And so what, what happens? Awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Brothers and sisters, this is why it is important for us to commit ourselves to the ordinary task of gathering with our parishes, to the ordinary task of being humble enough to make our needs known, to the ordinary task of considering our finances and how we might be generous with one another, to the ordinary task of breaking bread in each other's homes so that we might experience an extraordinary outpouring of God's Spirit that we might experience it in greater measure, that we might experience it all the more fully in light of God's grace. And so that, verse 47, we might praise God together and have favor with all the people and that the Lord would add to our number as He did to their number day by day those who were being saved. It doesn't have to be a period of revival for people to, to get saved, right? People have, by God's grace, been saved in these very cheap chairs and in our mostly run-down Montrose apartments. And yet, what we're asking the Lord for in revival is that we would experience that in extraordinary measure to the greater praise of God's glory in our time. And you see, the church, being the church, empowered by the Spirit in the daily fellowship, devoting themselves with a pure heart to Christ, His Word and His people, added daily to their number those who were being saved. And brothers and sisters, this has continued from then until now. And as we can see throughout history, Ordinary followers of Jesus have been willing to suffer to ensure that this continues. And that was, our, that was our final of the four means, right? Prayer, purity of heart, full-hearted devotion, and suffering. They were willing to suffer to ensure that this precious gospel made its deposit in their times and in their places for the glory of God and for the good of all peoples. Right? That's the story of the rest of the book of Acts. Where Stephen, the first martyr, is stoned. We witness the martyrdom of most of the apostles and the deaths of countless unnamed men and women faithful to the end. Read Hebrews 11 when you go home. You'll see the great names of the faith, but it will also mention those who died in relative obscurity, of whom there were many. Brothers and sisters, it's on their shoulders that we stand today. 
and it is for those to come for whom we must be willing to do the same. This is why so much of the New Testament is encouragement to suffer and to suffer well. And so, brothers and sisters, make no mistake that when we pray for revival, we're not praying for something easy. We're praying for something that is utterly messy. We're praying for new bundles of joy who are also new accidents waiting to happen. In fact, many of us are still accidents waiting to happen, myself included. And yet, ordinary people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can see extraordinary things happen to the glory of God through their simple obedience to God and their devotion to his people. And so my hope is that we will go forward from this series, not thinking the time to pray was then, but that we'll be more and more brought to our knees as ordinary men and women, pleading that he might send his Holy Spirit to us in extraordinary measure. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you so much, um, Lord, for this gospel of grace, Lord, that we now receive by your Spirit. Lord, this gospel of Christ crucified, Christ the payment for our sins, Christ resurrected in victory over our sin and over the death that we deserve so that we might experience life in Him. Thank you, Lord, that by your Spirit you quickened our hearts to believe. And thank you that in that belief now, God, you desire and you give the necessary empowerment of the Spirit so that we might walk in radical and immediate obedience to you. Lord, maybe this morning for the first time we need to repent and be baptized. I pray that if that's so this morning, Lord, that you would empower that obedience by your Spirit. I pray, Father, that we would not be so concerned about our inability that we won't beg and plead and look for the utter sufficiency of your ability. In fact, I pray that it would push us into that. Pray, Lord, that you would make us a people who pray. Pray, Lord, that you would purify and cleanse our hearts, God, that where there is sin in areas that we have tried to hide, that you would expose them. Not so that we could feel ashamed, but so that we could revel in the glory of the grace of the gospel that says that sin is paid for. And Lord, that that purity of heart would lead us into a full-hearted devotion to you and to your word and to your people and Lord that we would be willing to suffer together to see your name exalted and glorified to the ends of the earth we pray all of this in Jesus good name amen